edition of the survival podcast is always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't today's february the 19th 2021 this is episode 2825 of the survival podcast it is the expert council show for 21921 we are back from our um, our deep freeze i guess you'd say right now i am watching i am literally watching snow melt Uh, it's a very good feeling to see snow melting at this point. We went, I don't care what the media says. I don't care what they say. I, I'm not interested in their opinions about the temperature that I observed at my location. We went almost 14 full days without coming above freezing. I'm not even sure we have come above freezing yet today. We will. Um, so why is the snow melting? Because the sun is out. Think about that. We will have a... Uh, 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 an audible on the uh, song of the day at the end of the day. Well, probably some of you have already guessed what it will be. But that sun is out there. It is toasty warm. It is melting things. Again, we have a new episode today. Um, I do want to apologize yesterday, not for running a rewind, but for running the wrong <laughs> rewind. Um, I was in a rush last week to just get things done um, up till yesterday. And then yesterday I was in a rush to meet some family commitments. And so what I was doing, I actually did rewinds of rewinds, which I, I didn't think I'd ever done before. Uh, that way I knew that I could just grab everything and go with them. And I knew that, well, if I was rewinding a rewind, then I probably didn't just do it. And the, 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 the episode I picked yesterday seemed familiar to me, but I'm like, oh, it must be another version because it was actually a rewind that I did five years ago. And I didn't, because I usually check to make sure I don't repeat a rewind. And uh, so I, I played a rewind that you guys had heard a few weeks ago. But hopefully you enjoyed the rant yesterday. Today's show will be all new content. You can rest assured on that. Here's what I got for you guys today. Um, I'm going to lead off with a quote of the day by Rush Limbaugh and give, you, give Rush a bit of a shout-out now that he's departed us. I was not a massive fan of Rush, but I feel that anybody, anywhere, that makes a living with some form of what you would consider talk radio or an analog to talk radio, i.e. podcasting, owes something to Rush Limbaugh Infinity. Uh, next up, I have a lightning round from John Pugliano. We have dividends, corporate structures, investing starting young, and more. Uh, with Doc Bones, we're going to talk about preventing and dealing with hypothermia, and I'll tell you guys a story of some stupidity if you haven't seen the pictures yet. Uh, it'll be great to go along with that. Uh, more on Coffee Grounds in the Garden from Jeff Lawton. Choosing an electric chainsaw with Tim Toolman uh, Taylor. Tim Toolman Taylor. Tim, Tim the Toolman Cook. All right. Um, and is WordPress still safe from cancel culture with Nicole Awesome Sauce? Um, who makes the best current diesel engine and drivetrain right now? Uh, of you're buying a brand new vehicle, Derek Bonpietro will weigh in on that. On there, most of them are good, really good. Uh, best is a hard one to to to, to ferret down to, but Derek will uh, will give you his thoughts on that. And I want to finish up today with why at this point I am literally bored by the media. I know I snapped out about them yesterday because I still have this little tiny vestige of hope that at some point, for at least some things, they will do their effing job. 
But in general, I'm pretty much bored by media. I get a lot of content from you guys, and I feel bad that I don't like really do a lot of commentary on it anymore. Maybe I put some of it on social media, but mostly I'm like, of course, whatever. I'm going to tell you why. And we're talking about being proactive versus reactive, because when you're being reactive, you're literally the bull with the ring in the nose, right, and a little uh, clip on it leading you around. When See, if that bull figured out what was going on, he could stomp the shit out of the guy leading him around. You're giving up your own power. You're giving up your own power. I remember a meme one time. Someone had a horse, you know, all, all, all bridled up and all. And they had a lead from the horse tied to a plastic chair, like a little cheap plastic chair, and the horse is just standing there. That's what the media does to you guys. And... Uh, We're going to lead off today with, the, again, the quote by Rush Limbaugh. But I'm not going to say much about the quote itself. I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of just pay a little bit of respect to Rush. And I'm going to come back to this quote with my segment. Rush Limbaugh one time said, I must be honest, I can only read so many paragraphs of the New York Times story before I puke. Right on. So let me just say a little bit about Rush here. When Rush Limbaugh started in talk radio, talk radio was nothing. Talk radio was nothing. There was maybe a little bit of sports talk radio and all, but there was nothing like there is today. There are literally empires, media, like individual media empires. I'd put Glenn Beck in the category of having a, his own media empire, like employing you know dozens, if not, I think Beck's, based on when I was on his show at his studio in, uh, in Texas, I'm going to say I think he has well over 100 people on staff, well over 100 people. Um, what's his name? Sean Hannity. I don't think Sean Hannity would exist without Rush Limbaugh. Not necessarily people I really have a huge amount of respect for, but you know, Hannity makes about $50 million a year. If you don't think that's an empire, you don't know what empires are. Uh, and there's so many examples like that. But then you look at the permutations of this. If you look at people like Joe Rogan, if you look at people like me, much smaller than Rogan, and, and, and thousands of people that are out there Educating and forming through audio. Many of us do also videos as well, but audio really being the main focus of what most of us do because talk can be conveyed with audio. And as I've always said, audio is one of the most powerful forms of media and marketing in the world, if not the most powerful. And the reason I believe it's so powerful is if you have something that's image-based or text-based, video-based, the person's attention for it to be effective must be directed specifically to it. It is not really easy to go out and jog and watch the news. It is not really easy to go out and work in your garden and watch YouTube videos. right? But I know from personal experience on much audio that I consume, the main time that I consume audio, I'm doing something else. And, and to me, I'm not going to say that none of us would be doing what we're doing without Rush Limbaugh. And the reality is, somebody else probably would have been the pioneer in that space. But our road was largely paved by Rush. really was. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things Rush Limbaugh said that I agree with. Today's quote is a perfect example. There's a lot of things I think, yeah, you know, I understand why you feel that way. And there's stuff that I completely disagree with. But let me be clear. If I had nothing in common on belief systems with the man. I would still be respectful being in this space for the way that he prepared in advance for people like me to come along. 
the man created millions of people willing to be consumers of talk media, as maybe a better way to put it. And that created a market that we were then able to go in. And yes, we built our own markets. We did build that, right? It doesn't mean that our way was not made easier by the pioneering approach that Limbaugh took. And he completely revolutionized what talk media was. And I'll, I'll save my thoughts on like the, the, the little bit of hatred that you, little bit, I said a lot of hatred that you've seen. Like there's been just the left be, being completely malicious and hateful toward Limbaugh. I'll go ahead and clear that now so we don't have to talk about it at the end. You know why I don't give a shit? You know, I absolutely do not care what they say about Rush. There's nothing they're saying now that they didn't say while he was alive, and the man didn't give the square root of F all about what anybody said or anybody thought about him, and that's why I respect him more than anything else. He did his thing. He did his thing through the, the, the cancel culture we see today is just reached ahead. That man was attacked from the time he started to the day he died, and they couldn't do a thing to silence him. He was an example in that way. Again, even if you do not agree with much of what he says, and I don't, I respect the hell out of that example. And if you love talk media today, and you probably at least like it, or you wouldn't listen to a show like this, we lost the pioneer in the space when we lost Rush recently. Just wanted to give that, I just feel he deserves that little bit of respect here to my audience on the show. With that, let's go and talk about financial stuff. We got dividends, corporate structures, investing, starting young, and more with a lightning round with John Pugliano of investablewealth.com. Hello, TSP. We have a lightning round of questions. Let me see how many of these we can get through. First off, question comes from Dan, and he's asking about my thoughts on dividend-paying stocks for someone that's younger. And if you've listened to my podcast, you know that I've talked in the past about why I like dividend stocks. And I do want to clarify here that this isn't a binary situation where just because I like dividend stocks doesn't mean I don't own stocks that don't pay dividends. In fact, if you look at my current portfolio, I'm actually overweighted in stocks that either don't pay a dividend or pay a fairly small dividend. But bottom line, here's what I like about dividend paying stocks. And this is particularly for older people although it does work for younger people, and it is an approach that can be market-based, and this is why I talked a lot about it last year when the market you know, came crashing down with COVID-19 hysteria. I talked up a lot about dividend-paying stocks because I wanted to encourage people not to sell during a panic, especially if it's likely that the hysteria is not going to last for a long period of time. You don't want to panic and sell when everyone else is. And dividend-paying stocks can help reassure you during these downturns. And this is primarily why dividend-paying stocks are held by older people that want to take on less risk. And in a lot of ways, I would say older people that are more experienced and more knowledgeable of what's going to happen with the market over the long term. Now, what dividend-paying stocks do for you is that, in general, they constantly pay out the same amount of income regardless of the stock price. And this is where people get tripped up and don't realize how it works. For example, let's say that you own stock in XYZ company. And to keep the numbers simple, let's just say it's a $100 stock and it pays a $4 a year dividend. So for every 100 shares of that stock that you own, you'd receive $4 a year. And generally that would be paid out every quarter. So every three months, 
for every 100 shares of that stock that you own, you'd receive a $1 payment. Generally, dividend-paying stocks are large, well-capitalized companies, and unless they run into severe financial trouble, they never cut their dividends. Now, the dividends are not guaranteed, but generally, it's very rare that a high-quality company cuts its dividend. They usually raise their dividend, not cut it. So during a period of a downturn in the market, that XYZ company, which had a price of $100, could now drop 30% and only be worth $70. But it would still pay that $1 every quarter. And so previously, when it was a $100 stock and it was paying $4 a year, it was paying a dividend rate of 4%. Now it's still paying that $4 a year, but it's only a $70 stock. And the dividend yield has jumped up to almost 6%. And so what long-term investors are looking at is not so much the yield or the rate of return on that dividend, but actually what the dividend payment is. Because, for example, if they're in retirement and they want to have a guaranteed source of income, they know that whether the market is up or down, they're still going to be getting that $1 every quarter for the 100 shares that they own of that stock. And so if the market takes a dip and it drops 20 or 30 or 40 percent, while they're unhappy that their overall principle was lower than it was, they're not worried about the long-term potential of the market. They know that they'll weather through the storm, and in the process, they'll still receive that dividend payment that they're relying on as part of their retirement income. Now, I personally am not an income investor where I'm looking at the cash flow that I'm receiving from the dividends in terms of a payout. I just look at it in terms of overall total return on the investment. And since I'm not a big risk taker, I know that if I invest in high-quality, dividend-paying stocks, these companies are generally well-managed and they have solid business plans or they couldn't have been in business for so many years and been able to consistently pay out their dividend and pay it at higher rates. And so it's not that I only focus on dividend-paying stocks, but that is one of the filters that I look at because to me, it shows long-term resilience of a company. And that's just one other way I can build a risk mitigation strategy into my overall investment portfolio. Next question comes from Mark. And Mark is asking about a side hustle that he has that's profitable. He's paying taxes on it. His CPA recommended that he incorporate into an S-Corp. And Mark was wondering about the advantages of that and if it would be better to file as a LLC or perhaps just to keep it as a side hustle and report the profits and loss on the Schedule C of his 1040. Well, Mark, given the situation you're in and the type of business and the revenue that you, you mentioned that it is, I'm kind of curious why your CPA recommended the S-Corp. I would ask him about that and have him explain his reasoning. I think it'd be just fine keeping it as a, you know, a doing business as, uh, just as a sole proprietor and reporting that profit and loss on the Schedule C as an added level of protection, it's probably better if you are going to keep this business up and keep it active. I, I would recommend that you form the single member LLC, depending upon what state you're in. That can be a very simple process. It does provide you with some legal liability and then also it does establish you as, uh, you know, a more professional business. 
But the bottom line on a single member LLC, that business profit and loss is still going to get reported on the Schedule C. But the S corporation seems like overkill in your situation. As far as I know, the, the big advantages of the S corporation would be a couple things like you could directly write off the business cost of health insurance, which in your situation, I doubt you're, you know, running that through your business. And then also with an S corp, you can get around some of the social security payroll type taxes by issuing some of the income as special dividends, but that can get into some gray areas and set you up for audits. And in a lot of cases, I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that, uh, you know, are just tax situations that I like to avoid. So without knowing more detail, Mark, I think the S Corp is overkill, and I think you should look into the LLC. It's simple, it's easy, and it's effective. Okay, last question. This comes from Thomas. He's a young 18-year-old. His question is, how does a young adult prepare to build wealth, buy a house, and all the general life expenses? Well, Thomas, let me answer this by hitting on something that you mentioned in your email. You talked about last year having a 14 by 25 garden that you started, and you mentioned how that was kind of a metaphor for life because you took that project on. It probably required more effort than you were willing to put into it at the time, and, you know, you just didn't get the payback that you wanted. You mentioned that that's a good metaphor for life, and that's exactly right, and that's kind of how I'd framework my answer to you about getting started with building wealth. It's like that garden. A 14 by 25 garden is a lot to take on, particularly if you're a new gardener or you're inexperienced, and that's the same thing with building wealth. Rather than jumping into something and getting overwhelmed, it's much better to step back and attack things in just small pieces and small bites. So right now, you're doing the right thing. You're investing in yourself. You're learning a marketable skill. You seem to enjoy it. It probably fits your personality. And so that's really what you want to focus on. At this point in your life, the best investments you can make are in yourself. So start putting as much effort as you can into getting that education and getting the hands-on experience to make you a valuable and a sought-after employee. And then keep in the back of your mind how at some point in the future, you can not only be a valued employee, but also how you can rise up in the ranks and continue to offer a lot of value so you can increase the amount of money that you can earn as an employee, and then maybe even someday set up your own business where you're not only getting paid for your benefits, but you're making money on the entire enterprise that you've established. That's how you're going to build wealth. But it's just like that garden. If you start out by a 14 by 25 plot and not a lot of experience as a gardener, you'll quickly get overwhelmed. So start out in your career small and manageable. Make your little career garden plot as high yield and highly productive as you can. And when you master that, make it a 3 by 4 and then a 5 by 5 and keep working your way up. You'll continually increase your earning capacity that way. And then the other key part, and this is what people really miss, is in parallel with learning how to earn, you have to be a disciplined saver. So pay yourself first. Whenever you get that paycheck, make sure you're at least keeping some of that for yourself. Now, right now, you're young. you got a lot of expenses. You're not earning much income. You won't be able to save much. But just like when you're starting out with your small garden plot, Early on, it's not really about having a big yield. It's about developing the skills and the discipline to have a yield at all. So start small, and with each iteration, as you continue to pay yourself, that nest egg will get bigger and bigger 
just like your earnings capacity. You're young and you have a bright future, and if you attack things in these small bite-sized chunks, you'll find that it's manageable and the growth and the scalability are endless. Well, hey, I'm out of time. Again, thanks for all the questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. So uh, just to let you all know uh, where this next clip kind of originated from, I didn't actually think I'd get a uh, a segment, at least not this quickly, from Old Doc Bones on the subject of hypothermia. But what spawned it was, and I think I mentioned this yesterday, I definitely put the picture out a couple days ago on MeWe and Float and other places. Um, one of our neighbors went into uh, to the town and driving across Lake Worth noticed that the entire lake was frozen over. And this is something that... This does not happen in Texas. This You don't see... Now, a pond, sure. You know, we're talking about... A, that reservoir is somewhere between forty and 60,000 acres. It is a massive body of water. It's a huge thermal mass, and it has uh, one of the branches of the Trinity run through it. Okay? This, is, this does not happen here. So the lake froze over completely. And as they were driving across the bridge, they took a picture... Upon further examination, blowing up that picture, there were at least two morons walking on the lake. The odds that they would find a spot thin enough to fall through the ice, pretty high. Dorothy and I drove across that same bridge yesterday. It was still frozen over, which makes sense. It hadn't really gone above freezing yet. Uh, it was just starting. The sun came out yesterday afternoon. It was still below freezing, but like we talked about in the beginning, High solar radiation, even below freezing temperatures, things start to melt. There was a lot of slush and places it looked like it was about to you know, change a little bit out there. There were freaking footprints in the snow everywhere. So I sent him this video or this picture, and I said, Bones, look at this. These are two guys, at least, trying to win a Darwin Award for a surprise, uh, surprise ice bath suicide. Because you know you ain't gonna know until you know, and then you're gonna know for only a little bit of time when you go below. And when you go below that, you know, here's the thing, man. You go on ice. I'm from a place where things like, you know, ice fishing happen and stuff like that I'm in Pennsylvania. And there are advisories like on this lake, it's now safe to to go out and ice fish. Right, And then there's a report on the thickness of the ice. And you don't do anything like that until you know. These people don't understand that. And even when we used to play like uh, hockey on ponds and stuff, we had other people around. We all used to wear a little piece of rope around our neck with two pieces of uh, wood. And you put a nail on each, each side of that. And then you cut the top off and you grind the, the, the part that you pounded in. You grind that sharp. And then those two pieces of wood have another hole drilled in them. And you put a little bit of tape or something so it gets kind of stiff, so it'll stick and stay in there on the nail itself on the shaft. Or you can build it up with thread or something. You kind of build it up to create a little bit of friction. And then you piece it together. It looks like a block of wood hanging around your neck. Well, if you fall through the ice, you grab it and you pull it open. And now you have these two nails with handles and you can pull yourself either up on the ice or if the ice keeps breaking, you can drag yourself till it stops to a point where you're pulling yourself back to shore. These fools down here don't have no idea about none of that stuff I just said. So I sent him this picture, and I said kind of as a joke, maybe you should do something about not killing yourself in the cold, and this was the result of it.
Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of award-winning books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I thought I'd talk today about the dangers of exposure to cold. On and off the grid, if you don't take environmental conditions into account, you have made Mother Nature your enemy. And she is a formidable one indeed. Hypothermia is a condition in which body core temperature drops below the temperature necessary for normal body function and metabolism. The normal body core temperature is defined as between 97.5 to 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 36 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. Symptoms related to cold exposure occur once the core temperature dips below about 95 degrees or 35 degrees Celsius. The body, when it's exposed to cold, kicks into action to produce heat once the core cools down below that level. The main mechanism to produce heat is shivering. Muscles shiver to produce heat, and that'll be the first symptom you're likely to see. As hypothermia worsens, more symptoms will become apparent if the patient is not warmed. Aside from shivering, the most notable symptoms of hypothermia will be related to mental status. The victim may appear confused, uncoordinated, As the condition worsens, speech may become slurred. The patient will appear apathetic, lethargic, uninterested in helping themselves. They may even fall asleep. This occurs due to the effect of cooling temperature on the brain. The colder the body core gets, the slower the brain works. You should assume that anyone with altered mental status encountering cold weather is hypothermic until proven otherwise. In treating hypothermia, immediate action must be taken to 1. Prevent further heat loss, and 2. Reverse the ill effects. Important measures to take are Get the person out of the cold. Transport as soon as possible to a warm, dry location. If you are unable to move the person out of the cold, you should shield them as much as they possibly can be shielded. Be sure to place a barrier, especially between them and the cold ground. Exercise to produce heat in mild cases. In mild cases, your victim will still be alert, and if they can move without difficulty, mild exercise can help body temperature as long as they stay dry. Avoid exertion, though, in people who have moderate hypothermia or worse, or anybody who has altered mental status. You should monitor the breathing. A person with severe hypothermia may be unconscious. Verify that the patient is breathing and check for a pulse. If there is none, still assume the patient is revivable and begin CPR. Elevate the feet as you would for anybody that's in shock above the level of the heart. Take off wet clothing. If the person's wearing wet clothing, remove them gently. Ignore pleas of leave me alone. You're going to hear that. Cover the patient with layers of dry blankets, including the head, but leave the face clear. Share body heat. There may be circumstances where it's necessary to warm the person's body by removing your clothing and making skin-to-skin contact. Then you should cover both of your bodies with blankets. Now, of course, some people are going to cringe at this notion, but it's important to remember you're trying to save a life. Gentle massage or rubbing could be helpful, but too much, and you may cause unnecessary trauma. Give warm oral fluids. If the affected person is alert and able to swallow, provide a warm, non-caffeinated beverage to help warm the body. Now, despite the image of St. Bernard's saving alpine mountaineers with casts of brandy around their neck, Alcohol is a bad idea. Alcohol may give you a warm feeling, but it actually causes your blood vessels to expand. 
This results in more rapid heat loss from the surface of your body and negates the body's efforts to stay warm. Alcohol and recreational drugs also cause impaired judgment. That means that those under the influence might maybe clothe inadequately for cold weather. You should use warm, dry compresses. First aid shake and break warm compresses or warm, not hot water in a plastic bottle will effectively apply heat to the body core if you place it in certain areas, the neck, the chest wall, or the groin. Don't use hot water, a heating pad, or a heating lamp directly on the person. The extreme heat can damage the skin, cause strain on the heart, and even lead to cardiac arrest in some circumstances. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. To prevent hypothermia, well, you must anticipate the climate in which you're going to be traveling, including wind conditions and wet weather. Condition yourself physically to be fit for the challenge. Travel with a partner if at all possible and have enough food and water available for the entire trip. It may be useful to remember the simple acronym COLD, C-O-L-D. This stands for Cover, Overexertion, Layering, and Dry, C-O-L-D. C is for Cover. Protect your head by wearing a hat. This will prevent body heat from escaping from your head. Instead of wearing gloves to cover your hands, use mittens. Mittens are more helpful than gloves because they keep your fingers in contact with one another. And that conserves heat. O is for overexertion. Avoid activities that cause you to sweat a lot. Cold weather causes you to lose body heat very quickly. Wet, sweaty clothing accelerates that process. Rest when necessary. Use rest periods to self-assess for cold-related changes. Now, pay special attention to the status of your elderly or juvenile group members. Diabetics are also at high risk. You're only as good as your weakest link. L is for layering. Loose-fitting, lightweight clothing and layers do the best job of insulating you against the cold. Use tightly woven, water-repellent material for wind protection. Wool or silk inner layers hold body heat better than cotton does. Some synthetic materials like Gore-Tex, Primaloft, and Thinsulate work well also and should be considered, especially cover the head, neck, hands, and feet. And D stands for dry. Keep as dry as you can. Get out of wet clothing as soon as possible because remember, it's very easy for snow to get into places like gloves and boots. You have to pay particular attention to your hands and feet. If left untreated, hypothermia leads to complete failure of various organ systems and eventually death. Being prepared and knowing the right actions to take, well, that could save a life. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, I hope you'll support our mission by checking out some of the growing number of quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, uh, I've weighed in on this. I think Ben Falk weighed in on this. But we got Jeff Lawton weighing in now on what to do with an abundance of coffee grounds as far as the garden. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And we have a question here about coffee grounds. And um, <clears throat> somebody wants to know if they're um, good for the garden. Um, well, they are. Um, as long as you don't saturate the garden in coffee grounds, you can spread them thinly through the garden on the surface. You can add them to your compost. Um, um, you can sprinkle them through your lawn. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a convenient way to fertilize your garden. Um, I wouldn't make them too thick, that's all. Spread them around, keep adding. You couldn't add too much over time. Um, so 
I, I, th I think you can put them underneath your wetted cardboard and that's fine. They can add to the sort of breakdown of organic matter that goes with your, your additions under your wet cardboard. All of that works. They're generally um, a reasonable fertilizer. Not fantastic, but good. Right? It's not a problem. They don't cause a problem, I would imagine, until you get really, really thick layers and then it could go a bit anaerobic. That's not likely to happen. Um, so with a, with a normal amount, that's fine. Go for it. So next up, I got a Tim Toolman Cook here. I got it right this time, right? On, uh, on selecting a chainsaw that's going to get uh, fairly light use for emergencies and uh, general uh, homestead maintenance. Hey guys, Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. If you don't mind, take a minute to drop by my YouTube channel, help me hit that thousand subscriber milestone as we just passed the 700 mark, and drop by the Odyssey channel to get an exclusive workshop weekend video every single Saturday. So I'm back to answer another question for the expert council. This week's question comes from Darren in Missouri. And he says, I need to buy a chainsaw and would like your recommendation on brand and size. I live on four acres in the woods of Missouri. The only thing I need the chainsaw for is to keep the trees away from the house, the garden, and septic, and to cut up broken limbs and stuff after the storms. I'll probably use it two to four times a year for two to three hour durations. And that's it. The largest diameter I expect to cut is eight to ten inches. I have a few years of experience using a chainsaw, but haven't owned one in over 30 years. Like Jack, I'm almost 50, but still in decent shape. I don't want a huge lumberjack chainsaw, but I don't want to buy something cheap and regret it later. I'm toying with the idea of the 60-volt electric DeWalt chainsaw, but I don't have any confidence in it as I've never used it or known anyone to own one. I do have lots of the other 20-volt DeWalt tools, however. And I do own a steel, a steel weed whacker, so I already keep two-cycle oil and gas on hand. By the way, I hate sharpening and adjusting chain tension, so if I get a still, I'd like the one that has the quick chain adjuster. I assume that sharpening changes like death and taxes. Thanks, Darren. So the first question you're asking is, should it go gas or battery? When I lived on the East Coast and had to had 10 to 12 quart of firewood, I had to drop and chop or junk up the delivered 16-foot logs, then I definitely put my still MS-26 to good use. It never set long enough for the carburetor to get gummed up and just worked all day, every day that I needed it. But since I moved to the prairie seven years ago, that chainsaw has done more sitting than cutting. And no matter how much I try to keep it topped up with stabilizer and run it occasionally, it doesn't happen. And I'm, I've been spending more time pulling on it and trying to get it started and keep it started than it was ever worth. So last summer it came to a head on a hot July day when it wouldn't keep running. So I threw it to the ground, and at that moment, I decided to get the exact model you're looking at, that 60-volt DeWalt chainsaw. So that being said, if you are going to use your chainsaw for just two to three hours, two to three times a year, I don't think you're going to regret getting a cordless battery-powered one, simply because it can sit on a shelf for three years, you throw a battery in it, and you're good to go. A couple of things to consider, though. The 60-volt chainsaw is not backwards compatible with your 20-volt batteries, so you'll need to get some of the 60-volt flex-volt batteries, and they are pricey. But once you have them, you're going to love them. Also, as I said, the cordless chainsaw has worked for my business so much better than I ever could have hoped, and I've been more happy with its power and runtime than I expected. However, in just about every side-by-side -side comparison with other models of chainsaw, the DeWalt hasn't even come close to first place. For the most part in this category, 
I have to be honest, it's been the Milwaukee. I just wanted to be transparent here so you know. But honestly, for what you're doing and how often you're doing it, I see no reason to go with a gas-powered saw, unless you decide to start heating with wood down the road. That's a different story. So Darren, secondly, I hear you on sharpening the chains. I spent quite a bit of time years ago trying to learn how to sharpen chains, but never was able to master it. I even worked with a guy who would buy a new chain, cut with it until it was dull, and then throw it out. I personally have gotten into taking them to my local rental shop and getting it sharpened for 10 to 15 bucks. Saves me a ton of frustration and is half the price of a new chain. And another tip for you, if you have a steel dealer around, take your chain in for your new cordless model and have them make you up a new chain with their carbite tooth chains. They're about double in the price, but they last between three and five times as long between sharpenings. I've used them for a couple of years and they hold up so much better when cutting dirty wood or when junking on the ground. As well, most of the cordless models on the market, including the DeWalt I use, has the quickest, the quick adjust toolless chain adjuster, which is incredibly great. I love it. So that I don't have to remember to keep a chainsaw wrench in my toolbox as well. And a few final advantages I have found since switching to the cordless. Number one is the weight of the saw. It's significantly lighter than its gas powered equivalent. So that's nice as we're getting older and our bodies hurt more. And also, you aren't sitting there sucking on that wonderful gas oil mixture fumes. And the best thing is, I can use this saw without the need of having any hearing protection on, which was always an issue when I was using my still. One final consideration is price, though. Cordless saws are a bit more expensive than their gas counterparts. Amazon doesn't have any stock right now, so I included Home Depot links for the Milwaukee and the DeWalt. The Milwaukee kit comes with a saw, a rapid charger, and a single 12-amp-hour battery for $450 American. The best deal I could find right now for the DeWalt with a charger and a 2-amp-hour battery for $300 and throw in a 2-pack of 6-amp-hour FlexVolt batteries for $180, making that combo $480. So I hope that helps. If you want to pick my brain some more, feel free to email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com. Keep the questions coming, guys. Send them in to Jack for anything tool, handyman, small business owner, or even extreme cold weather living related, and I will gladly answer them for you. And if you have a minute, drop by toolmantim.co, and if this is still in February, sign up for the Library Coin Contest, where the pot gets bigger every day as people enter and tip, with 100% of the pot going back to the first, second, and third place draws. And drop by my Odyssey channel, where, I, like I said, I have an exclusive Saturday workshop weekend video every single Saturday. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Well, next up, I got Nicole Sauce on an interesting question. This is about WordPress, but it's not necessarily how to do anything, but should you still use it? Uh, with an understanding that WordPress seems to be part of the woke crowd, uh, the people behind it anyway, uh, and the world of cancel culture, are you at risk using WordPress as a platform in the era of cancel culture? What say you, Nicole? Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee, and... I have a question in from Bruce. He asks, do you think WordPress is still safe for a liberty slash freedom focused blog? If not, what do you recommend? This is somebody who just is at the very initial phases of starting blogging. He then goes on to ask what books, especially Kindle or Internet resources, do you recommend? That's all. Thank you in advance. I hope your 2021 is better than your 2020. Well, Bruce my 2020 was pretty good, and my 2021 is going to be better because I'm going to make it that way, right? It's up to us to do that. Anyway, the first question, is WordPress safe these days? 
I guess you're asking that because of the cancel stuff that's been going on early this year and the technocracy and all that. WordPress is a platform and you can run it on many different hosts. So worry more about the host that you're on. If you're going to be doing controversial content, than using WordPress or not using WordPress. WordPress is fine for now. It is still the best option, in my opinion, for starting this kind of a project, a blog. And I have been evaluating other options for about a year because I think WordPress over time is going to go out of vogue, basically. I think they're going to destroy themselves. That's my long-term outlook on WordPress. But for now, they're still the best we've got, right? I just haven't found anything better from a big picture standpoint for doing something, especially like starting a blog. So that's my recommendation there. And then what books do I recommend? I don't have any specific books, videos, articles, or anything on the internet to recommend for you about starting a blog. That's because there's way too many to, to choose from. And most of them say the same things. A good rule of thumb, though, if you're going to go out and start reading about successful blogging is to look at who's writing it. And if it drives you to a specific product or service like hosting with Bluehost, who is terrible, you should not host with Bluehost or using a specific plugin or any of these things, take the core advice, but don't necessarily use that tactic. As you read more and more about different different perspectives and recommending different tactics or plugins or themes or whatever, you'll develop ways to evaluate those tactical recommendations in a way that works for you. Because a lot of times what you see, especially in like the first three pages of search engine results on how to start a blog, are people writing listicles or other articles that are going back to revenue-based share options to promote a specific tool. It doesn't mean any of those tools are necessarily bad, but you want to know the motivation about why somebody would be saying that. So that being said, I divide starting a blog into three basic buckets that I think about. First is brand and content. Second is website setup. And third is community development. So on the first one, Brand and content, this is where you put a lot of thought into the why of your blogging project. Is it to document and journal anything in particular? Are you telling a story of your homestead? Are you starting to read Mein Kampf by Hitler and you want to start sharing your freedom perspective on that writing, right? Who are you looking to interact with? What's your sole motivation? Is it monetary? Are you just in this for the Amazon affiliate links? If you are, don't start. Why will you keep going day after day, week after week, year after year, even if it seems like you're getting nowhere? You need to know that question about starting a blog before you start a blog, because like a podcast, you're going to have like first podcast comes out. And for me, 87 people listened to my first podcast. My second podcast had 14 downloads. Yeah, 14. So you have to get through the days of the 14 and you have to be really motivated to do that or else your blog will kind of fizzle out. And other things you want to think about is how often you're going to be posting to your blog, how long will they be and anything else related to just having a good, healthy blog. The key though, Bruce is to get started. That's right. I said, get started. The number one reason I see people fail at blogging is they don't actually start writing the blog. They spend a long time making a website and then they don't put anything on it. That's worse than just starting on a non-ideal platform and having regular ongoing content and developing a community. 
because if you do the second thing and it's not all perfect, you've got the community, you've got the content, you've got a way to grow. If you just build the tool or the tool shed and then don't use the tools to build the house, you never get the house, right? So if you're going to go for a blog, go all in, be dedicated to content creation, stick to a schedule. And I always say, be ready to do it for a year before you really evaluate if you're going to keep going on the project. And also know this, there are no magical SEO contracts that will help you fast track your blog to millions of readers. However, the minute you start a blog, uh, a lot of people will reach you out, out to you and say, hey, you need to buy my you know, $100, $200, $2,000 S- uh, SEO package to get out there because that's how you get more readers. That That's not what you need. What you need is compelling content and real connections and a promotion plan that you're in charge of because if you don't have that, you're not going to go anywhere. And then the other thing, some things that make blogs appealing are compelling content that's written in a way that an internet reader can absorb it, preferably on a computer or a mobile phone, compelling graphics, a clear message, all of those things. And then that consistency that will win over a sporadic good piece of content from time to time. So look every moment you spend looking for shortcuts to grow your presence is a moment you wasted not growing your presence. And then if you have like a good story to tap, to start off with, that's a great way to get a broad audience. I've got a friend who's doing a homegrown challenge year where she's only consuming things she's eaten from her homestead. Meanwhile, her kids and husband can have whatever they want. So they're like having Dr. Peppers in front of her or whatever, and she can only have the food she grew. She had a six month wrap up to that. And now she's in the throes of her homegrown year challenge. Well, imagine like you get really invested in that story and then you want to come back to her blog. Look for that for your Liberty blog. Okay, the second bucket is website setup. And this is where folks usually start on their blog. And that's not the first place they should start. The first place you should start is figuring out what your brand story is going to be, what your content's going to be, what your schedule is going to be, and actually starting the writing of it. Okay, website setup. Yes, you can build your own WordPress site with a premium theme and some good plugins. No, it will not look as good as if you pay a professional to do it. Yes, that's totally okay if you're starting a blog. I do have some updated advice here, and this is it. Like learning to do your own plumbing, electrical wiring, or wall framing to add a bathroom to your house, learning to build a website is sort of the same thing if you're not already in the website uh, area, right? It's an engineering project that's part of your bigger picture project, and you need to decide if that ROI it is in your favorite. Is it better to spend hours learning how to build the website or is it better to spend a little bit of money to get somebody to build you something that's a basic blog site, learn how to do maintenance and updates, learn what a a page and a post is and how to make changes to them, learn how to adjust your navigation menu, learn how to add and manipulate images in a way that's that's makes sense for your website you know, and that second one takes a little bit more money than the first one, but then you can spend your time on the content creation, right? So I think if you learn well how to make good decisions on website design, content organization, user experience, avoiding plug-in bloat, you'll be much better off than if you are not somebody inclined to web development and you DIY a site because what usually what I see happen is people spend a lot of time on that and then they're not making their content 
And it's really a choice that you should make based on your skill set, budget, and long-term goals. So that's my thoughts on website. The third thing is community development. Nobody is going to read your blog except for your wife or your mom. And even they are not going to read your blog unless there's a reason to keep going back. And reasons I would go back to a blog is that, you know, like with J.P. Sears, who does the the YouTube channel, right? I go back there because that dude's funny. So he has good content, right? Okay, so if you have good content on your blog, people are more likely to go back. Another reason they will go back is because they can interact with you. So when they say a comment, you comment back. That's really important. And part of community development is interacting on other people's blogs and on social media and getting out there and basically having a conversation without saying, yeah, I have an opinion on that too. Read my blog. Okay, that's not how you do that. You just go in and interact on a topic you're already interested in. And eventually people figure out that you have a blog. And yes, from time to time, sure, you can drive them back to your project. But if every interaction is driving people back to the project, you become a bad actor in that community. So don't do that. Developing community takes time and effort. And that is part of starting your blog. In addition to the content and the schedule and the taking of the pictures and the putting it all together and the getting covered on other people's blogs, if you can, like all of that takes effort. And that's how you start growing a blog. So... As you figure out your marketing plans, be sure to put plenty of time and resource towards developing your blogger community because those are the people who will make you successful with your blog. Okay, so do I sound a little bit like a grump? I am a little bit of a grump on this topic because I get asked the question a lot about how to start a blog and people don't like the answer that you have to do it consistently, put time into it develop your content and just get started. They would much rather think about the dream of the blog. So decide which person you are. Do you really want to start a blog or do you want to dream about starting a blog? Because blogs are a great, great way to track a journey or to share information. And it's a great way to develop relationships with people and a personal brand over time. They can even monetize for you really well if you do them right. And they're not that hard to do. It's not that hard to get started unless you hate writing or hate computers, or hate social networks, or hate people, or hate how learning how to adjust photos and take them, or learn how to do new things. If that's the case, if you hate those things, look for a different way to get the word out, right? Just really be honest with yourself. And then if you love those things, go for it. Get started. You should be hearing this and saying, I'm writing my first article tomorrow. Even if I don't know how to post it to the website yet, I will figure that out. If you can go in with that attitude, you're much more likely to be successful on a blogging project. And that's the thing that keeps you going from day to day, right? The fact that you love what you're doing. So as you start this journey, remember to set it up in a way that you're going to enjoy and that it meets your end goal. Or know that you're setting it up without exactly a goal in mind, because it is okay also to start a blog as a personal project or journal and let it unfold and grow as you develop the content, as you develop your personality online, as you develop a community around you, you can find, you'll be informed from them and that may take you on a totally different journey than you expected. Both approaches can work great on blogs and I love blogs as a communication tool. So Bruce, I hope this helps you think about how you want to get your blog started. Guys, if you want to know more about me, you can check out my podcast at livingfreeintennessee.com or get really awesome craft created coffee over at hollerroast.com. Jack, thanks for everything you do. 
and I will see you soon at your workshop. Can't wait. Make it a great week. So just a little more on the, the risk there of the cancel culture part, because Nicole did a really great job of kind of going through that quick and just getting it done with and then covering more on the subject of actually getting a blog going. Um, I don't think the risk is anywhere near as high as some people might think. Um, I don't think it's necessarily because WordPress isn't full of wokes, right? I, I think almost all the, the media tech firms out there today are wokes. And if they're not wokes, they at least pretend to be wokes because they're afraid of what will happen to them if they don't. Is you know because the left is so loving and kind and not intimidating at all or anything. Um, however, WordPress is software. WordPress is software. So I'm going to give you an analogy. There's a there's a company I can't remember its name now, but they basically have a box when you go to order ammunition from them online that says, "Did you vote for Joe Biden?" Or did you not vote for it? And if you'd voted for Joe Biden, they won't sell you ammunition. Okay. While I appreciate the intent, in the end, it's nothing but virtue signaling. Because if somebody really wants to buy ammo for him and did vote for Joe Biden, they can just take the box and say they didn't and buy the ammo. That's kind of the situation when you're selling a product or a service or what have you that's not somehow hosted where you get to decide you know, who you do and who you don't serve. WordPress is open source software. You download that software. Now, I think if you're hosting on WordPress.com, you could get nuked, and you shouldn't be there doing that anyway. I mean, we've advised you not to do that forever because you should own your own platform. When you take WordPress software and you install it on your website, it does not rely on some kind of signal from the mothership to keep working. You see what I'm saying? It is. It's like if you bought a software application installed it on the desktop of your computer, if it's an app that has to go out and ping something, like what happened to Parler's app on the iPhone and on Android, yeah, see, that can be shut down. They can sever the connection. But, like Nicole said, if there's anything to be worried about, it'd be who are you hosting with, and might they shut you down? And that's really what you know hurt Parler bad, was Amazon Web Services shutting them down. So, my advice is to host with someone that's above the fray in this, as best you can tell. Always have your site backed up, and you can always move it. And again, WordPress is software, and it's open source. And this also, if they tried to somehow enforce this, opens up a really quick world of basically an open source piracy, I guess would be the way to put it. In other words... Since the code is completely available to anybody, if you're doing it for commercial purposes, there is some licensing agreements and stuff like that if you're you know, commercially building something on it. But in the end, can you enforce that? Because it would be very possible for, for coders to basically clone the, the software and basically create you know, not, not WordPress out of it or something like that and continue to support updates and all the plugins. It would be almost impossible to do. And what you generally don't see companies try to do is, or governments even, enforce mandates that cannot be enforced. So I, I just, I don't see it as that big of a risk. It's, it's, it's a lot like the concern that people brought to me about, well, but, but isn't Brave's browser built on the same software that Chrome is? So doesn't that mean that Google can shut it off or spawn? No. No, the Chromium is the core open source software. Brave took that open source base code and made their own browser with it instead of starting from scratch. And that way it can tie in and use like all of the extensions that work from Chrome. 
it's still its own thing. And that's the way to view this, I, I would say. Next up, let's, uh, let's hear from another expert council member. How about, um, Derek Bonpietro on who makes the best current diesel engine and drivetrain? Great question. Derek, take it away. So good stuff from Derek. I want to just talk to you a little bit here about at the end today, and I'm going to be kind of brief for my anchor segment, just about why I'm literally to the point where I'm bored with the media, bored with the news. It doesn't mean I completely ignore it. There are certain things that you kind of want to know about, and there's still some vestige of information within the news. And in general, what you have to do to get anywhere near a straight story about, like, let's say this, this blackout uh, problem in Texas, which is, I've already dug in enough to tell you, it's incredibly multifaceted. It is multiple system failures, as I said in my rant yesterday. You, the only way you're going to get the truth is you have to read or consume another form of media, audio, video, whatever, uh, multiple sources. And then you have to do the work that the journalist is supposed to do in the damn first place and put it back together. So when you're at a situation where you're trying to get information about something that truly is a developing, breaking situation where things are not known yet, then you have to turn to these assholes and ex expect that you're going to be lied to and bullshitted and they all have an agenda. Other than that, since you got to do that anyway, it probably makes sort more sense to just ignore them all together and do your own research since you got to do it anyway to know the truth. And it's because of how formulaic and obvious the pattern has become. And I think there's two things to this. I think one, it just has. Since people are stupider, right? I don't know if stupider is a word, but, but they, we had a, a little, little, little teasing rhyme when I was a little kid on the schoolyard, right? Girls go to Jupiter to get more stupider, right? <laughs> okay. And, of course, they would just flip it around and say, boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider, right? So I don't know if stupider is a word or not, but it, it is, it is in, in principle that our society has gotten more stupider. I don't think they went to Jupiter, but they did get more stupider. And because you're stupider, and I say that, I don't mean you as an individual, I mean you as a society. And anybody that doubts that, you're probably one of the stupid people. Um, <laughs> that's why you don't know you're stupid. Anyway, um, they just had, they, they haven't had to be as sophisticated in, in pumping out the bullshit. Further, almost all these media outlets now are not so much concerned with ratings as serving a subscriber base. The media is such a niche-based audience now that even what we think of as large media outlets really have niche markets. And those niche markets want to be told what they want to be told. You know, God forbid Fox News didn't 100% toe the line on, on, on the shit that happened with Trump with what that core base wanted to hear, and they all migrated to ONN and whatever the other one is. Like the Fox News ratings tanked for daring to alter the story from the, the QAnon version by, uh, you know, 5%. And, and, and that's happening everywhere. That's not a Fox News thing. That's a media outlet thing. So what you have is if you have something like the Wall Street Journal, they're making all of their money now because their advertising is shit, right? Their money comes from subscriptions, So you have the subscriber base, and the subscriber base wants what it wants. So, in other words, you guys are not coming to the Survival Podcast 
to hear a daily podcast about tropical fish. I like tropical fish. I know a lot about them. Sometimes I might actually bring that content into the show on how it could be a side hustle or something or how it can support aquaponic systems or aquatic systems. But in general, I don't talk about tropical fish because my audience isn't interested in tropical fish, right? Okay, so the, the people that subscribe to things like the New York Times... They're not interested in the facts. They're interested in hearing what they want to hear about how Democrat good, you know, uh, conservative bad. That's what they. So that's what they're going to get. And and when you turn on media on television, you're getting largely the same thing. Yeah, there's six media, six six channel or six companies controlling all the media, but each channel, each bifurcated little piece, each slice is serving its own niche, and it's going to give that niche what that niche wants. And it's what's completely destroyed the concept of journalistic integrity. It does not exist. So when I hear something from the media, right, and it, it sounds outrageous, I know it, it either is, is ex exaggerated, and it's not worth my time to figure out how exaggerated, or it's, maybe it's true. You know, if it's like, do you know that Joe Biden wants a law for blah, 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 and it turns out to be true. Well, even when it's true, I don't get to decide whether that happens or not. I no longer live under the delusion that I can call my congressman and, and make it go away. Okay? So I, I don't have any control over it, and I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Like, Did you hear AOC? Why are we giving this dumb bitch... Two seconds of our attention. I don't give a flying shit what AOC has to say about anything. The woman's dumber than the freaking moss on the north side of a boulder, and you're running around outraged that she has an opinion that's stupid. Like, how can you be upset about a stupid person saying stupid things? You know when you get upset? You get upset when smart people say stupid things. That's when you should be upset. Because clearly at that point, that person's been brainwashed or controlled in some way. Or the situation around them is so degraded that their, their mental capacity is degraded. That's what you get upset over. You don't get upset because dumb people say dumb things. The, the woman's dumber than a fence post. Or Maxine Waters, another example. I mean, I think, I think AOC's actually smarter than her, and AOC's really stupid. I don't care what these people have to say anymore. I don't care that some lady got all pissed off and shitty because some guy had the audacity to do something nice and plow her driveway for her, and she found out he was a Trump supporter and wrote a piece for, I think, the L.A. Times. And the L.A. Times was such a scumbag organization that they would run such an article. I don't care because I know the entire point of that, that whole exercise was what? To make you outraged. And to make me outraged. So if I get outraged by it, I've given the idiot who wrote the stupid article and the publication that put it out exactly what they wanted from me. Do I want them to have what they want from me? Do you understand that when you get outraged, right, and when you get outraged about something that doesn't really affect you, this woman's a bitch. Does that really affect you, right? No, it doesn't affect you. But you get outraged about it. You're being controlled. The entire purpose of the media is what? 
What is the purpose of the media? And I'm, I'm asking for a single word. What do the media call the content that they put out? When the media gets together, any media organization, they get around the big, giant, expensive conference table and talk about what they're going to do, and they discuss putting out information. What do they use as a generic term to refer to all the content? The word is programming. What do you do with programming? You program a computer so that it does what you want it to do, so that it behaves and acts in a way consistent with your goals. Why do you think they call it programming? Because that's what they're supposed to be. That's what they're doing to you. So I'm bored with it, and I think you should be too. It is so formulaic. It is so immediately obvious to even the most casual observer. And the only reason it even works is that we've been... We've had this done to us for so long, and it's been incrementally made worse, where if you took a person from 1980, as bad as the media, the media was bad in 1980, don't, get, don't, don't think it wasn't, but if you took a person who last experienced the media in 1980, and other than the culture shock of the internet and all that shit, right, but you brought them somehow forward in time to 2021, and you showed them what the news was, They would just shake their head, eye-roll themselves near into another dimension, and just walk away. They'd say, well, look, clearly you can't, you can't put any stock in any of this. But that same person who was around in 1980, and still around today, a lot older, you'd think they'd be wiser, because they've been incrementally chipped away at their expectations of integrity, and more, become more and more tribalistic in their belief systems, they actually still fought for it. And it's not going to, you know what it's not going to do? It's not going to plant the garden in your backyard. It's not going to start the livestock system in your backyard. It's not going to store water for you. It's not going to see to it that you have backup power. It's not going to see to it that you have systems of redundancy in place. It's not going to make sure that your family eats next week. It's not going to make sure that, that you have an income to support your family. It's not going to make sure that you have multiple forms of how you save value in your life. It's not going to do anything that we talk about for you. Nothing. That doesn't mean we can't learn some things. And it doesn't mean that there's not places to look at what's going on. But when it comes to the generalized, we're going to tell you in 30 minutes to an hour everything you need to know that happened in the world today. Every second you spend listening to that is wasted. Even if you're not going to be working. right? Even if you're not going to be working during that time. Let's say you're tired. You had dinner, you sit down, you put one of these assholes on, you start listening to them. <sighs> And you're thinking, well, if I wasn't listening to that, it'd be you know, something else on TV. You could be reading a book. You could be writing a book. You could be sitting in relative silence and meditating on the day of what was good about it, even though it was a shitty day. You could be sitting outside staring at the stars, drinking a glass of the best wine that you can get your hands on at the moment. You could be taking a walk in the evening, listening to the wildlife, even in the city, as it sundowns and gets ready to go to sleep. You could be reading a story to your children from a book. If your kids are up and gone and you have grandkids and they're not close to home, you could call them up and read them a story over the phone. You could be working on something or you could be relaxing. You could be organizing your doodads 
or ignoring your doodads, right? You could sit and watch fish swim in a tank, or if you want to use the TV, you could turn on something like Curiosity Stream and watch an amazing documentary about how fish exist in ecosystems under the ocean. You could literally sit there and do nothing. Doing an imitation of a potato. And your time would still be 100 times better spent than listening to CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, fill in the blank. It should not only at this point not interest you, but it should literally bore you. And if it's not yet at that point, I suggest that you work on making it that way. Because what you'll find is the more things that you have going on in your life, under your control, that you're building for your future, the less that you'll care about somebody telling you what somebody else said or did. Because 90% of the news isn't even the things that happened. It's so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and now we're going to bring two other assholes on to argue about the two things the two other people said. That is no way for a human being to spend their time. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, um, you can do that a couple ways. One, become a member of the MSB. That's a member support brigade. Use the discount codes that we have in your back office, and you're going to probably buy some stuff like that anyway over the, over the year of your membership. You use the discount codes, and it more than pays for your membership, so your membership is essentially free, and you support the show. It's a great way to go. Uh, and you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. Uh, next up, um, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And uh, today's item of the day is the Anchor um, backup battery uh, systems for your cell phones and you know your other electronic devices. And the reason I'm bringing it around is, one, everybody just got a real reminder about having backup power and how important it is. <laughs> Um, the other thing, though, is the uh, they're both on sale. I have the 26,800 milliamp hour charger and the 20,000 milliamp hour charger uh, listed today, both in the, in the write up. Um, the 20,000 milliamp hour one is on sale for something like 20% off. It's it's really a great deal, and 21% um, off. The, uh, the larger one's only 9% off. It's not that great of a deal. But the, the 21% off, the 20,000 milliamp hour, is really great. And I know everybody will always bigger and better. The 20,000 milliamp hour unit, right now the way it's priced, you, you, you could buy two of them for just a little bit more than the price of one of the bigger one. And you have a lot more capacity and you have two as one, one is done. And they're no slouch either. They will charge five charges for an iPhone XS. Uh, five full charges for a Galaxy S10, more than four char charges for an iPhone 11, and two and a half charges for an iPad Mini 5. So really just a great device, and Anchor is stellar. I've sold, at this point, tens of thousands of items from Anchor through T-Spaz. Tens of thousands when you add all the different ones together. I've never had a complaint, and I know why. Anybody selling electronics today is going to have some DOAs and some problems, the reason I don't have, ever have a complaint is because if you have a problem with an Anchor product, Anchor just fixes it. Usually it's just keep it, we're sorry, we'll send you another one. And, and that's why I continue to recommend them because they're outstanding. I mean, um, I, my house is like a little Anchor you know, anchor mall, like if there was such a thing, a little st Anchor strip mall, you know, like a kiosk 
uh, in the old school malls or something. Uh, and there's a reason. It's just good stuff. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. I'll be brief with this. Um, for most people throughout the United States that just went through this massive weather event, and I know if you're in the north, it's still cold and all, but what has happened, as I said earlier, is even where it's still cold, the dadgone sun came out. So you know it's all I'm going to play. Here comes the sun by the Beatles. Hope you guys had a decent week. I'll be back next week with a full new week of content. And yes, Miyagi Mornings will return next week to uh, Odyssey, YouTube, etc. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say it's all right. 